Well, let's pray. Father, in your name, we pray that your word will be living and active today, that you'll take these words and make them effective in our lives and bring transformation where we need it. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, this is going to be called a leadership odyssey. And if you remember the Greek myths, you'll remember that the odyssey um, was an epic journey with many twists and turns and a few sirens, the odd cyclops. And here we're going to see some of the twists and turns for Moses in the book of Exodus. And if you remember where we were over the last few weeks, Moses has encountered a burning bush where he has met God, and God's told him his name and given him a commission to go to the people of Israel and, uh, and tell them that they're going to rise, and he's going to tell Pharaoh to set my people free, and the people are going to leave Egypt where they've been in slavery for hundreds of years now, and they're going to worship the Lord in a new land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And everything is, in the end, going to be all right. That's in the end. What about on the journey? I wonder how your personal odysseys are in life. If you feel life is smooth and just steadily going in the right direction, or whether it has twists and turns. It may be that you set out in a certain direction and you were sure that this is what you should be up to. And yet, along the way, different things have happened that have knocked your confidence in the journey you're on and the destiny that you're going to. And look at how this works out for Moses, and we're going to see a few players in this. Way back before our passage today, at the beginning of chapter 4, Moses is already asking the negative questions. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? What shall I do then? And Yahweh, the new name for God, has said to him, uh, here's your staff, put it on the ground, the snake comes out. Here's your hand, put it in, leprosy comes out. Here's the magic powder, it'll turn water uh, into blood. Here's your signs. When you use your three signs, they're going to be behind you. And Moses has gone with that confidence that he can get the Israeli people behind him. Okay? And guess what happens? Uh, Verse 29 of chapter 4, Moses and Aaron brought together the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed, and they were concerned, that uh, they were glad that God was concerned about them, had seen their misery. They bowed down, and they worshipped. So far, so good. But what Moses didn't know is what question to ask. It's always so important when you're setting out on a journey to know what question to ask. Because the problem wasn't whether his vision cry could rally people around him in the good times when there was just hope ahead of them. His problem was how would they react when vision came up against opposition? When the reality of where they were going to smacks into the reality of the situation they're in today and collides in in a calamitous way. And that's what happens here then in chapter 5, which we'll read through. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and they say, look, so far, so good. Um, We've got the people behind us, and the Lord, the God of Israel, says, let my people go so they can hold a festival in the wilderness. And Pharaoh doesn't just say, oh, yes, that's a good idea. I'm going to let my workforce go. Uh, instead, he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Uh, so they try again. Um, 
The God of the Hebrews has met us, and he says, take a three-day journey into the wilderness and offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. And the king of Egypt fairly understandably replies, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you're stopping them from working. So the challenge Pharaoh is experiencing is one to his power and one to his finances. And he's not pleased about it, and he's saying, look, stop it. And he is used to being in charge, so he's not just taking this line down. He's not just passively going, stop, go back to work. If you don't mind, I would rather like it. And if you'd like to bring the trade union in here, we'll have a little conversation about this. And the strike's over, okay, because... Um, you know, otherwise I'm docking your pay and we'll, you know, we'll try and get the government involved. He is the government, he is the judiciary, he is the employer, he's everything. And so he says to his overseers, right, increase their problems. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota, they're lazy, and that's why they're crying out, let's go into this wilderness and sacrifice to our God. Make them work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lies. Now, notice the way this is happening. Pharaoh is not talking to the Israelites and saying, if you don't do this, then I will do that. He's not even doing that to Moses and Aaron. He's doing it behind their backs to the Egyptians who are in charge of them, and they're just going to notice the pressure building up and building up on them, like the frog in the proverbial saucepan of water, and when they get hotter, guess how they're going to react? They're going to flip, flip around. So the slave drivers and owners in verse 10 go out and say to the people, this is what the Pharaoh says, I'm not going to give you the straw, you've got to get it yourself, but your work's not going to be reduced. Um, so they had to scatter all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. And they keep being pressed by these slave drivers, presumably with whips and other things, swords and spears, and saying to complete the work. And they beat um, the slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they'd appointed, demanding, why have you not met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? So the pressure is on all of the Israelites. They're all having to work harder, but especially the ones who are in charge of them are getting a double dose of attention because the people aren't delivering what they should do. None of them know the reason behind this yet. It's just building up the pressure and building up the pressure. And so the Israelite overseers, who are used to being the ones who get special attention and special treatment, come and appeal to Pharaoh, and they say, why have you treated your servants this way? We've been good people, and you, you've not been given any straw, and we've been told to make bricks, and we're being beaten, but it's, it's your guys who are making us do this. It's, it's their fault. Where's the straw? Bring back the straw. How can we do this? It's not reasonable. And then Pharaoh says... And this is where suddenly the knife is twisted in uh, to Moses. Lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let's go and sacrifice to the Lord. And they're like, we haven't been saying that. That was Moses and Aaron. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw. You must produce your full quota of bricks. And verse 19 is the light bulb moment where they suddenly get it. They realized that they were in trouble when they were told, you're not able to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. They've appealed to their highest authority, and he's clearly against them. And then they find Moses and Aaron outside, and they say, may the Lord look on you and judge you. 
You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Dear Moses, one moment he's the deliverer in waiting. The next moment, the people he's come to deliver are saying, if only God would judge you and get rid of you, because instead of us being delivered, we're now in twice as much trouble as we were before. Here's the man fulfilling the vision God's told him to do uh, a few weeks into the journey, now being considered to be an absolute pain in the neck. This week I went to the licensing of a, a new vicar at a church just outside of London, and I was speaking to her on the phone yesterday, the day after the licensing, and she said, oh, I'm doing this, 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 and this. The church is just thrilled that I've come along, and I'm able to I'm bring in all sorts of things that, um, that they've been waiting to happen, and uh, people are running with things and all sorts. And the curate had been there was like, how come you're doing so much so quickly? And she's like, it's the beginning. <laughs> In the beginning, it's all right. You know, you can do stuff. After I've been there 100 days or so, they'll be like, <laughs> and that's what Moses is experiencing here. He's full-blown, <laughs> you're not doing our priorities. Our priorities were that you made our life easier. And now our life is twice as difficult. What's going on? And he is in serious trouble. So we've seen Pharaoh's reaction. We've seen uh, the Israeli overseer uh, reaction. We've seen Pharaoh's reaction again. We've seen their reaction back to Moses. And now we get a window on Moses' own personal life. How does he deal with no longer being the flavor of the month? How does he deal with it? Well, he turns to the Lord, his one true friend in this whole situation, and he complains. He says, why have you brought trouble on this people? If, is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to speak to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you've not rescued your people at all. <laughs> Reminds me of the story of the church warden who, after a number of years, thought he ought to confront the vicar because no matter what was going on, at 4.03 in the afternoon, the vicar would get up from his chair and stare out of the window into the back garden. And it didn't matter if it was a counseling appointment, a meeting, uh, whatever was going on, he would always get up at 4.03 and stare in the garden. And the warden was like, Look, I'm, I'm sorry, Reverend, this really is a little bit rude uh, from time to time. Um, why? It's only at 4.03 you do this. And he said, ah, that's when the express train goes by and it's the only thing in the parish that moves without me having to push it. So I like to pay it homage every day. <laughs> and dear Moses is... is really in crisis point here. He knew he was going to be in crisis before he got going. God had said, here's the three magic tricks, see what happens when you get them. They got him so far, but once they face genuine opposition and genuine resistance, they've turned against him as he thought they might do. And he cries out, why? Why this trouble? And you haven't done, God, what you said you were going to do. It hasn't happened swiftly and quickly. It's not done yet. Why? And he's genuinely upset. And then the Lord says to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Remember when uh, Keir Shrews was here as our curate, when we were talking about the work we would do over at St. Albans, he would often say, Richard, I don't think it's where we get to with St. Albans that matters so much as how we get there along the way. And what God's saying here in uh, chapter 6 of Exodus verse 1 is, 
I want them to know how they got out of Egypt. I don't want it to just be Moses, the mighty charismatic new leader, rocks up, uh, appeals to Pharaoh, says the right words, has a great eloquence or skill or even magical powers, and they go, I want them to know that they had a big deliverer. Have you ever set out on a, on a difficult journey? It might be a journey of marriage or, or ordination in Genesis, or joining a team or, or setting out in a particular friendship that you knew was going to cost you or looking after a child for someone else and you knew it was going to be a long journey and you knew that you would be challenged along the way by the decision that you've made. There would be times where you would much rather not be doing what you were doing because it's a hard calling and a hard journey. What you need to know when you're in a difficult place is why on earth did you get into that situation in the first place? Because otherwise you're tempted to flake out. I can remember when I was counting, um, counting the cost for ordination, uh, going away to my BAP, having put in references from, um, uh, including a reference from someone who I thought would scupper my application because <laughs> he didn't like me very much. Anyway, his reference got lost in the post. And he refused to write it again. I don't know if he wrote it in the first place. I assume he was telling the truth when he said he had done. But someone else wrote the, the reference for me, and he happened to be a chief selector for the Church of England. So his reference counted triple because he was one of the people who, who was designed to do these things. He passed away this week, a wonderful man called Keith Masters. He's the reason I got through at, at 23 into this role. Um, peace on his soul. Um, but what you need to know, don't you, when you're setting out on something that will be difficult, that you've tested it, and you're definitely going in the right way. Similarly, when I was thinking about getting married, I can remember the point where I was really aware that I was committing to Nicola. And whether life was difficult, flaky, hard along the way, I can look back to that one point and go, actually, I'm all in on this. I am all in on this. This is not an emotional reaction. This isn't just a chemical reaction going on in my brain. I am actually deciding that this is something I'm committed to, come hell or high water. Fortunately, it's all high water um, because we're a lovely lady to be married to. But I know that I've looked back on that and gone, yeah. So if I'm flaky, then I, I, I've got a point to go back to. Boom. And God's saying to Israel, you are going to need to count the cost of being my people. It is not going to be easy to shine like a star in the universe for me. It's not going to be easy to be my one light in a pagan world. It's not going to be easy to be true to me. So you need to have a great story of deliverance that will propel you along your way. And this is going to be it. That arrogant man who has been making slaves out of you, who has been oppressing you down these years, who has treated you so badly, my firstborn son, so badly, I'm going to humble him. And here he goes in verse 2, 3, 4. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my new name to you, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Cana where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered the old promises I've made. 
Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Yahweh will free you from being slaves to them, and Yahweh will redeem you with an outstretched arm and will, with mighty acts of judgment. Yahweh will take you as his own people, and Yahweh will be your God. Then you will know that Yahweh is the Lord your God, that Yahweh is Yahweh who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And Yahweh will bring you to the land Yahweh swore with the uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Yahweh will give it to you as a possession. Yahweh is Yahweh. (laughs) Boom. Okay? But actions speak louder than words, don't they? And Moses goes and repeats this to the Israelites. And they're still caught in the misery of the situation they're in now where they've got twice the amount of work to do. And so in their current reality, they can't hear the incredible divine voice that's coming in explaining what is going to happen in the future. And they're just discouraged. And then the Lord says to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh this. And he's a bit like, well... Your own people won't listen to me when I say this. Is Pharaoh really going to listen to me? And that's what he says back to the Lord, verse 12. If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? And he's gone from potential hero-ish right down to zero in the story already. A very, very normal leadership journey played out on the faces of Scripture. He also will need the exodus to give him the confidence that he's going to need over the next 40 years. He will need to see the powerful deliverance of God. He will need to see that Yahweh is more mighty than Pharaoh. He does not yet understand who has been talking to him. How about you? Do you know who it is who talks to you when he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love? Do you know who it is who talks to you when he says, before the beginning of creation, I knew you? Do you know who it is who talks to you when he says, I have numbered the hairs of your head and you are mine? Do you know who it is who says these things to you? Do you know who it is who became flesh and walked about among us and died for us and then rose again and ascended to the Father? Do you know that the Lord of the universe stepped down to earth because of his love for you? Or does it just feel like words in the face of the realities that you think are bigger realities than the great reality? Because this passage in the context of the overall story of the Exodus is a great reminder that often we think that under the circumstance we're doing all right. Given the situation and the cards that have been dealt to us, we're all right-ish in the circumstances. And the great reminder of Scripture is there's no reason to be in the circumstances or under the circumstances because the Lord of the circumstances says to you, I love you. I'm for you. I will deliver you. I'm taking you to a place with a mighty outstretched arm. And I have already, if you are a believer now, done the great exodus. You have already been delivered from sin and death and the dominion of the devil. You're already out of Egypt. You're already on the way to the promised land and have already touched a foot into it. That's our story. We're there. 
and the drudgery of the rubbish realities, they do not define us any more than they should have defined the Israelites and Moses. They had a great excuse. They hadn't seen the power of Yahweh yet. For us, it's written on all the pages. And it's written on our heart through Jesus. He lives in us. He ever intercedes for us. And he reminds us that his will will be done. And his kingdom will come on earth as in heaven. So it's a very normal journey Moses goes on. (laughs) Very human journey. And at the end of it, he comes out as one of those great characters who gets to meet Jesus at the transfiguration and will come back as one of the two great prophets in the last days. He's a quality character, and he's a very flawed one. Made his mistakes, thought he was worthless, just like you or I may do. But anything we do for God will face opposition, difficulty, self-doubt, all those things. But remember the big story. Jesus has already won, and you're invited into victory. Not into drudgery, into conquest, not into misery. May God bless his word to us today. Amen.